where the Spirit of the Lord is. The The Spirit of the Lord is. The Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. We know living in your freedom. We know where the Spirit of the Lord is.
Good morning. Will you join us in continuing worship this Sunday?
you. Amen. Um, you can go ahead and have a seat. Um, hi. How's it going? <laughs> you know? This whole meet and greet in the middle of the song it thing. Really you know, wow, that's, that's pretty good. It's, uh, I skipped the whole part of the song, by the way. Really? <laughs> yeah. But luckily your grace was His enough. His grace is enough. All right. Oh, that's perfect. That is great. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so this stuff is really for real life, isn't it? Yeah. It is great to have you here on, uh, I was going to say this nice, on this spring day. And, um, you know, it's hard to believe, but the calendar says that summer is coming up. And at Hopevale, that means that in a couple weeks, we'll be going to our summer schedule. So uh, beginning uh, two weeks from today, Memorial Day weekend and through the summer, we're going to go back to two services, 9 and 1045. So those of you who are 9 o'clock regulars, that doesn't affect you, but it does have implications as well with some of the children's programming and so forth. So if you read through the bulletin or if you get on the website, we've got just a lot of detail on what that means for our schedule. So I want you to be aware of that starting in a couple weeks. Also, just uh, today at 2 o'clock as well in the venue is our spring business meeting. We do these a few times a year to uh, update members and those who call Hope Elder Church home just on the status of our church. We give financial updates. We talk about some of the major initiatives the elders and the staff are working on, and it's a great opportunity to stay in touch and communicate with our church body. Two o'clock today in the venue. Well, as we continue to worship, I'm going to ask that the ushers come forward as we uh, share share with the Lord what he has given to us through our offerings. And, you know, I mentioned the business meeting. I, I mentioned that, you know, part of that is just giving a financial update. And, you know, just kind of spoiler alert, things are going really well. And it's just a reflection, I think, one of God's faithfulness to us, but also an expression of your generosity. And so uh, just really on behalf of the entire church, the leadership, I want to say thank you. Thank you for being led by the Lord, of living life open-handed, and of just following the Spirit's work in your life. So thank you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your grace is enough. Your grace is enough not just to save us, but to change us, to make us the kind of people not just you want us to be, but we want to be knowing that, um, wow, even on our good days, Lord, we know that there is so much more that we can and and should be for you. And not out of um, duty or regret, but out of invitation, out of freedom, where your spirit resides in us. And so that's our prayer for us individually. It's a prayer for us as a church, God, rejoicing on where you have brought us, your grace, and where your grace will continue to lead us in the future. God, thank you for your provision in life, your provision uh, through the generosity of your people here in this church. And Lord, we continue to give first and foremost, not as a way to pay the bills, but as a way to worship you. And for that, we're grateful. And Lord, as, Lord, we steward these gifts, may we in return use them to further your kingdom in this community, and in this world. Because, God, there is no greater hope, there is no greater message, there is no greater Savior than Jesus himself. 
And so we want to do everything to invite others to know and follow him with us. That's our heart, and it's in that spirit that we give today. In the name of Jesus, amen.
ahead and stand and sing this with us. That the more we seek Him, the more we find Him. from the 
I love how that's so true. That when we turn our eyes to Jesus, all the things of this world just don't seem to matter. We can see the light of his glory and grace when we sit at his feet, when we seek out after him, when we sit with him and we, we take the cup from him, that covenant. We say, yes, yes, I will follow you. And you can go ahead and have a seat. It's uh, pretty powerful to sing a song, well, a chorus of worship like that, that really uh, just centers our hearts and gets us, well, gets us in a right frame of mind. And, you know, certainly as we think about this series on anger and what it is to know God's perspective, it's really important that we come with, you know, uh, our eyes, our hearts focused on Jesus. You know, we are just, this is our third week into this series, and it already feels like we've been in for a long time. You know, last uh, week, we, Mother's Day, we were talking about kind of anger in our own lives. And today, as we continue on, I want to get to the um, optimistic, encouraging side of what does it mean to change and grow when it comes to our anger, Right? So we recognize that anger is a thing with us, and I'm sure a lot of us just, you know, we're not content with where we are, and so we think about growing, we think about changing, and as we do, I think it's vital that we first identify what we think our goals should be, right? I mean, where should we be moving toward? After all, a bullseye on the wrong target is far worse than a near miss on the right target, right? And so what should we as Christians, you know, should we be aiming for with regard to the emotions and the expressions of our anger? Well, here's where a review of where we've been so far is going to be helpful because a simplistic yet incorrect goal for anger would be something like, I just need to stop getting so mad at everyone all the time, right? Or I've got to get all this rage out of my life, as if the ultimate goal we should be shooting for is absolute calm and the elimination of every single trace of anger from our lives. Now, there are some of us who do have a short fuse, and we wrestle with an angry disposition, but to say that the total removal of anger is the target we need to shoot for is both impossible, and yet it's also incorrect, See, the Bible makes it clear that anger in and of itself is inherently neutral. It's not necessarily bad all the time. That's why our first building block in understanding more about anger is what we've talked about these first two weeks, this, that God's anger is always good, right? As I've said before, we might cringe at times when we read passages in the Bible about God's anger and his wrath, right? But we do so because we're not God, and we don't possess his all-knowing wisdom, his all-seeing perspective, his all-perfect character. And that's why we have to keep on repeating this statement. I, I want you to make sure you understand this because it's so important. That because God is love and holy and just, he is able to be angry at the right things in the right ways at the right time for the right reason in the right proportions, right? And it helps us understand that anger can be good. And with God, it is always good because God does not ignore evil and injustice in this world. No, to the contrary, he sees everything 
that goes on. Words, deeds, thoughts, motives, and is angered when sin and selfishness are chosen over love and righteousness, especially when others are hurt in the process. So God's anger in all its perfection, maybe you've never thought about this before, but is actually a complement to his love, not a contradiction of it. God's righteous, perfect, holy anger is actually a complement to his love, not a contradiction. Now you might be wondering why we're talking so much about God's anger when the focus today is on our own anger. But don't dismiss what I've just said because in the end, he actually is the goal. I mean, that's what we're shooting for. Not the elimination of all anger, but just the elimination of all our unrighteous anger. Which goes then to the second essential biblical truth, that not all of our anger is bad. And we saw that, right? Not all of our anger is bad, but a lot of it is. And a lot of it is because unlike God, we're not able to be angry at the right things or in the right way or at the right time or for the right reasons or in the right proportions. Sometimes, but not always. And yet always is the goal. That's what we need to be moving toward. And so as Christians, put it this way, God isn't looking for us to stop getting angry altogether, right? The elimination of all anger. No. Like I said before, that's impossible and incorrect. Rather, I mean, this is who we are, right? We are forgiven sinners because of Jesus. We are men and women who are in Christ, but also in process. And so in this sanctification journey where we are becoming more like Jesus, God wants our anger to move increasingly toward righteousness and away from unrighteousness, right? That our anger would become more godly, less selfish, more helpful, less hurtful, right? Movement away from and movement toward. That's the target we have in our sights for our anger. So how do we make progress toward that goal? Well, that's where last week's message comes in, where we sought a better understanding of why we get angry. Now, realizing that anger is incredibly complex, I tried to boil down the process of anger into these four steps. We had provocation, interpretation, experience, and response. That anger begins as a reaction to some kind of trigger event that happens to us or around us, right? We're provoked, and that something might have directly affected us or maybe indirectly that it happened to someone or something that we really care about. Like I said last Sunday, you know, these provocations, these trigger events can come in all shapes and sizes. Spilled drink, lost jacket, bad grade, flat tire, harsh word, missed anniversary, broken promise, shattered dream, could be just about anything. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, right? As I read that list from what I read last week. Yesterday, driving down Shattuck, heading to the church, one final finishing touches on the message, and who gets a flat tire, right? This guy, right? And I thought, God, you know, this series is for all the other angry people at our church. I wish it would be so practical, right? Flat tire, right? Just isn't that great, you know? And so we have this provocation, this provoking event. And that trigger event happens to us around us. We then in turn interpret that event. We process it. We make a judgment about it. So for instance, you might have a friend who refuses to respond to your repeated calls and texts 
and it makes you angry. Maybe you think they're rude and inconsiderate. Maybe you think you're just inconvenienced because you need an answer from them and they're not getting back to you. Or maybe you're scared. You're scared that their silence means they're breaking off the friendship. And so the anger isn't just that they're not returning your calls and texts. It's what you're reading into that, right? The interpretation. And so as we interpret this provoking event, rightly or wrongly, it causes us to experience anger. We get angry feelings. But like I mentioned last week, angry feelings aren't the problem, right? They're actually a sign that we're created in the image of God. And so to try to numb our emotions to turn off all our anger is a wrong approach. No, unrighteousness with anger comes in how we thought about what ticked us off rather than the fact that we are feeling ticked off, right? But then once we experience anger within, it then leads to this fourth step, the response, right? That's steps three, steps four, the difference between angry feelings versus angry actions. And while the Bible doesn't condemn us for the experience of our anger, it is hard on us when it comes to the expression of our anger, how it comes out of us, how it is directed towards others, and that is where we often blow it. Now, hopefully these four steps in the process of what makes us angry make sense to you because today's conversation builds off of where I finished last week. So as Christians, right, when it comes to understanding our anger, we need to recognize that there are just some things we cannot control, right? Specifically, provocation and experience, right? We can't control the trigger events that happen to us. Now, maybe there are certain situations, right, you shouldn't walk into because you know they'll only make you upset. I mean, I guess we have little control of that. Like, um engaging in discussions about politics and religion on Facebook, right? Probably is an activity that some of you need to avoid. You just know how that's going to end, and it won't turn out well, right? But for the most part, you can't go through life in total isolation, right? You can't shield yourself from all potential provocations. I mean, stuff just happens. So then once we've interpreted those happenings in a certain way, again, rightly or wrongly, and feelings of anger will ensue, we experience anger that's just the way God's made us. And so when we think about change, when we think about growing as Christians toward righteous anger, away from unrighteous anger, these aren't the places where we need to do our work. No, it's these other two steps of why we get angry, where God calls us to responsibility, both with our interpretation and our response. And so when we talk about the difference between our righteous and our unrighteous anger, this is the battleground, right? Why? Well, it's here where we jump to false conclusions, It's here where we assume hurtful motives in others, right? It's here where we blame them for our wrong and sinful behavior. It's here where we rationalize our unjustified acts of revenge and retaliation. I just couldn't help myself. They made me do it. Things like that, right? And so if we're tired of being stuck in these repeating and debilitating patterns of anger, if we are mournful, over how we've hurt the people we love with our uncontrollable rage, our verbal tirades. If we're frustrated over our selfishness and inability to grow as more compassionate Christians, and if we're desiring to honor God in every single area of our lives, then this is where, by the grace of God, right, 
These areas are what we need to address. So that's what we're going to cover over these next two weeks. I thought I could fit both of them into one message, but they're in too important to rush through. So for today, we're going to spend our time on this first one, on interpretation. Now, as I mentioned before, there's so many factors, right, that go into how we interpret the things that happen to us. And last week, I pointed out a couple differences between us and God when it comes to this step and why his anger is always righteous while our anger often is not. So one difference, right, that we need to acknowledge is the difference between God's all-knowing wisdom versus our incomplete knowledge, our limited perspective, right? God knows everything we don't, and sometimes we just don't have all the facts, even though we might think we do. This is where I appreciate the insights of Christian author Gary Chapman When he talks about the difference between perceived wrongs versus actual wrongs, right? And how they're often not the same. Now, if you think about it, with God, there's no difference between the two because what he perceives is actual. But with us, not so much. Because we can often interpret other people's words or actions as actual wrongs done to us when, in fact, that's not really the case. Why? Because we didn't have all the facts. Why? Because we made certain assumptions. Why? Because we're convinced we couldn't possibly be wrong. And so as a result, our anger is distorted, right? It's distorted. It's triggered, as Chapman puts it, by other things like mere disappointment, unfulfilled desires, frustrated efforts, bad moods, any number of things that have nothing to do with a moral transgression, right? Right? We weren't really wrong, no. We just got mad because we perceived, right, through our interpretation that we were wrong. We are not God. We do not know everything. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about external facts and what actually happened, but I'm also talking about internal motives, right? See, what often makes us angry isn't so much what someone else does to us, but it's why we think he or she did it to us. When we're not in a good place, we are so quick to read motives into a certain situation or a certain person that just aren't there, right? Now, sometimes our discernment's okay. Sometimes we can get it right. But more often than not, especially when we're a little agitated, we're just not accurate in our judgments. That, by the way, goes back to a passage we looked at last week. Remember this, Matthew 7? Let's take a look again where Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And this was, this really, verse 3, verse 4, is, is just the key of this whole interpretation problem we have. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and yet pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, right? It's this distorted perception we have. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, right? We just don't always see it clearly. That's why Jesus says, you hypocrite, right? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is Jesus' way of just saying, slow down, right? Of saying, hey, you need to first look in the mirror. You need to honestly ask yourself if you're reading the situation correctly, realizing that what goes on in our life often clouds our judgment. So practically speaking, we're in the midst of that. Here are some questions we can ask ourselves. Do I have all the facts? Can I be sure of their motives? Do I really know why they said that, why they did that? Am I in a good place personally 
to judge this accurately, right? And was I really wronged or was I just frustrated, inconvenienced, embarrassed, right? And sometimes, you know, we just blend all that together. You know, as I read that last question, I think about the statement that God is able to be angry for the right reasons and in the right proportions, because that certainly isn't the place when we're not in a, you know, good place. So, and so we lash out at someone not because they intentionally and morally wronged us, but maybe they just made a, a careless, offhanded remark, something that didn't make us look good in the eyes of others, that hurt our pride, Right? Now, should they have made that comment and, and joked about it? Oh, probably not. But should we have not responded in anger so severely? Definitely. The same goes when we take out our frustrations on that slow checkout clerk who can't quite figure out the weekly sales and just seems to be taking their sweet all time even though we're already 10 minutes late for our next appointment. Now, should they know how to do their job better? Probably. Did they morally wrong us? Did they deserve our harsh and sarcastic remarks? No way, right? It's that interpretation problem. So one of the differences between us and God is our incomplete knowledge, right? Perceived wrong versus actual wrong. Reading motives into situations that just aren't there. And depending on what we do with that, it, it's going to affect whether or not our anger is righteous or unrighteous. And then the other difference between God and us, and I think this is an even bigger factor, is our imperfect character. Our imperfect character. See, when God gets righteously angry, it is always out of a holy and perfect passion for his glory and for our good, right? Always. But for us, when we get angry, it's often because the universe of me has been disturbed, right? At this provoking event, what someone said about me, what they did to me, it got in the way of what I wanted. And so when my wants are not in alignment with God's will, that's when righteous anger springs up within us. Now, I've got to say that this is really unpleasant stuff to talk about because it's so ugly to admit about ourselves, right? That there's a part in all of us that is really more concerned with getting what we want rather than doing what God wants. I mean, who wants to fess up to that, right? And yet if we don't, there is always going to be a blind spot in us, this locked closet that we're unwilling to go into that's going to keep us from experiencing all the change and all the growth that the Lord wants to do when it comes to our anger, and so if we've got it in us today, let's go ahead and face it head on. Here's what the Bible has to say about this ugly part in us. Right? James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what he says. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? These expressions of anger. Well, this happened to me. It was, you know, you know what? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's writing to Christians, by the way. And he says, you know, there are desires, there are wants, there are needs and longings, right, that are competing within you. And, and, and our anger, our disagreements, right, flow from this, Right? Verse 2, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight, right? We quarrel and fight sometimes not because we were wronged, 
No, it's just the other person didn't give us what we wanted, right? So we get angry. You do not have because you do not ask God. No, you take things into your own hands, right? Anger, frustration, driven by want, verse 3. And when you ask, you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Wow, this is, this is like a spiritual x-ray of a, of a sickly heart, right? And yet if we're dead dog honest with every single one of us, we admit that, yeah, that's us. So unlike God, we have these warring desires that battle within us. Unlike God, those desires and want, when, we're not, when they're not met, we're, we get frustrated. We get frustrated. We get frustrated at the people who stand in the way of what we want. It angers us. We take it out on others. And unlike God, then we're prone to things like covetous fighting, like self-seeking motives. And so even for us as Christians who do have a desire, I'm not saying, you know, we're 100% evil. You know, we have this desire to honor God. We have this want to do the right thing. And sometimes, though, that righteous desire in us isn't enough to overcome the pull of our selfishness. And so when that's the case, that's when we're prone to unrighteous anger. Let me just add this observation from Christian author Robert Jones because it really challenged me that when we talk about the desires that battle within us, those that lead to anger, sometimes those desires aren't necessarily for bad things, but rather they're for good things we want too badly. Sometimes the desire isn't for bad things, rather they're for good things we want too badly. It's the parent who gets mad at their child for the mistakes they make. It's not that they hate their child. No, they actually really love their child and want them to do their best at every endeavor, school, sports, clubs, music, drama, friendship, right? The problem is they're too controlling. They want it too badly. They're unwilling to let go and ultimately trust God for the welfare of their child. That's the example of a good desire gone wild, right? So if the problem of our unrighteous anger is tied to the issue of these warring desires, then the question is, how can we change our desires? How can you, how can I change those deepest longings within us? Well, the short answer is we can't, at least not on our own. No, when we talk about changing our fundamental wants and deepest desires, there is no amount of self-generated willpower that we can muster up by ourselves that can overcome what's going on within us. Now, we might be capable of some temporary successes and short-term wins that look pretty impressive on the outside, but none of that is going to last for the long haul, okay? It won't. No, the Bible makes it clear, and if we're honest with ourselves, our experience supports it, that if we're going to gain traction, if we're going to find victory over time in our struggle with unrighteous anger, then we need a power greater than ourselves working within us to change our hearts and to transform our desires. And for the Christian, that power is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit who is given to every believer at the moment of salvation. Any attempt you try to make to get a better handle on your anger that leaves out the Holy Spirit is doomed to fail in the long run. It's doomed. Now, the only way that you and I can move from selfish, unrighteous, right, 
hurtful anger to godly, helpful, righteous anger is to submissively cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit within us. There's a rather long passage I want to read through with you that talks about this. Now, we don't have the time to cover every single little detail from these verses, but just by going through it, I think you're going to get the general sense of how the Holy Spirit works to change, change us, right? To work in this war of desires that goes on. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? The sinful nature. For the flesh desires... See, you can see the war here. Verse 17, what is contrary to the Spirit? And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh? They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Right? That's the war of desires that James was talking about. They are in conflict with each other. And so the way we overcome the desires of the flesh, these bad sinful desires is to walk by the Spirit, to daily submit to His leadership in our lives. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but let's move on. Drop down to verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Now, look at this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Paul gives a long list here of what our lives look like when the desire for our own wants is greater than the desire for God's will. That list actually goes through verse 21, but I wanted to highlight verse 20 here because it just lists all these different expressions of anger. Fruits of the flesh, if you will. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions. Angry things we do on our own. Angry things that affect other people. And that's what's going to happen when we try to exclude the Holy Spirit from the change process in our lives. Conversely, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I know many of you are familiar with this fruit of the Spirit passage, right? But I want you to pause for a moment. I want you to see how all these words stand in stark contrast to selfish, unrighteous anger. I mean, think about it. Self-centered anger is not any of these things. It's not loving. It's not joyful. It's not peaceful. It's not good. It's not kind. It's not gentle. It certainly lacks any kind of self-control, right? No, for more of the fruit of the Spirit to come from us, we need more of the power of the Spirit to work within us. That's what Paul is saying. Change begins from the inside out. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, right? My wants over God's will. Those are crucified. We, since we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. I want you to lock on that last phrase because I love how Paul puts it. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. What we need to understand is that growth and change in the Christian life isn't about one dramatic lightning bolt that's going to flush away all our rage, right? No, change in the Christian life comes through this long, cooperative journey with what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and through you. A long, submissive, cooperative journey where what? Our job is to keep in step with the Spirit. Daily, ongoing choices of simple obedience that are empowered by the grace of God. That is how change happens. That's how our desires grow increasingly in alignment with God's will. 
then as all that's going on within us, that's when we're gradually going to move away from unrighteous anger and progressively inch toward growth and righteous anger, right? So on our own, we can't do it. But empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives within us, change is possible. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, as we sang beginning of this service, there is liberty, there is freedom, there is power. Well, like I said earlier, next week, we're going to look at the response part of our anger and ways we can grow there. But as I begin to wind things down, I want to make sure we've got a good grasp on this interpretation stage of our anger and what to do with it, right? We saw in the message one of the challenges with interpretation is this incomplete knowledge, right? We've got to just admit we don't know everything. And so often our anger springs from what? A perceived wrong rather than an actual wrong. And that's that whole you know, speck, plank dynamic at work that Jesus talks about that clouds our judgment. Now earlier, remember, I gave you some of those diagnostic questions, and I think they are helpful, right? Do I have all the facts? Can I be sure of their motives? Am I a good place personally to judge them, judge the situation accurately? And was I really wronged, or was I just, you know, frustrated or inconvenienced or embarrassed or disappointed, right? And it's a good exercise to walk through those questions before we let our anger get too far. But before, but beyond, excuse me, you know, asking ourselves those questions, we also need to pray. We need to ask God for his wisdom into the situation and his insight into our hearts. Now, I know that might sound trite, you know, like a Christian cliche. You just need to pray about it, right? But a lot of time with our anger, we just keep it to ourselves and we stew in it. I mean, let me ask you a question with something you're going through right now that's got you so upset. Simple question. Have you prayed about it? Have you asked God for his perspective so you can see the situation or you can see yourself more clearly? I think this is especially important in anger when it comes to relational conflicts, right? We are so ticked off at what the other person said about us or did to us that we're blind to the part we might have played. You need to understand that you're not responsible for the choices and actions of others, but you are for your own, right? And so the question is, have you prayed? And then if you do pray about the situation, and God shows you what you need to do about it, then are you humble enough to receive it and act on it, right? Without blaming without denying, without downplaying, without, you know, shifting, without saying, you know, excusing it's the other person's fault, right? You're humble enough to receive what God shows you and act on it. See, that's where the limitation of our incomplete knowledge bumps into our imperfect character. Where the problem now we're wrestling with is not perspective, but pride. Stubborn, selfish pride. And so in addition to prayer, this is where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in, Right? The power of God in us that enables us to do what we in our own strength are unable to do. You know, so often, Christians think about the Holy Spirit giving us strength to do these amazing, incredible acts for his kingdom, right? We see in the book of Acts, and that is something he can do. But you know what else the Spirit empowers us to do, especially when it comes to our unrighteous anger? The Holy Spirit at work in us is able to give us the power so we can overcome our stubborn pride, right? 
So we can say to God, so we can say to other people some of the most transformational words we can ever speak. Words like, I was wrong. Words like, I'm sorry. Words like, will you forgive me? To speak those words and to really mean them. Listen, you and I need those words, not just to mend broken relationships. So often we clasp on those phrases, you know, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because we want to get the relationship right, and that is part of it. But we also need those words to fix ourselves, to grow ourselves, to change ourselves. We do, because if we can never get to the place of saying things like that, then our anger is going to remain stuck on the side of selfish, hurtful, unrighteous anger. We're deep in our heart of hearts. We're still more concerned with our wants than God's will, with being right more than being holy. That's why in that same chapter we looked at, chapter 4, James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? God's not going to give to people who stay with cleansed fists, right? There's, there's no way for them to receive his grace, right? But the humble are those who open their hands and say, God, I can't do this. I need you, right? And so when we in humility can come before God, confessing our wrongs, seeking his help, that's when the Holy Spirit begins to work mightily in our lives. That's when our anger begins to move gradually away from our unrighteousness and toward God's righteousness. Now, we need to understand, right, that this doesn't happen overnight. There's no magic wand that gets waved and we're completely cured of our unrighteous anger. But as we keep in step with the Spirit, right, in submissive cooperation with what he wants to do in our lives, we will continue to see, we will, day by day, year by year, of God increasingly conforming our character, our anger, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us to take our lives, to take our anger, maybe for some of you it's even taking your specific anger situation and bring it before the Lord to seek his perspective and to rely on his power. This is how real lasting change happens. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes there are passages in the Bible that um, we know are true, but maybe we don't want to admit it, right? And this passage about warring desires, this passage about the struggle of the spirit and the flesh within us, you know, we, we don't like to admit that, but God, we know that there are times we don't get angry for the right reasons. We take it out on other people. Maybe because they're a convenient excuse. Maybe, you know, they just got in the way of what we wanted or maybe we just just are reading far too much into their motives, right? We think they've wronged us when they haven't. And so, God, the only way we find that freedom, the only way that your grace is enough is to humble ourselves before you, to seek your perspective, to rely on your power. 
and to say, God, do you work of change in me beginning from the inside out? God, for people here who need freedom, who need deliverance, who need to be freed from the prison of their own unrighteous anger. God, may your grace be mighty for them. May your grace be enough for them. And then for all of us, Lord, give us just a passion, a strength, a perseverance to continue to gradually more and more move away from our selfish anger and more and more inch toward your righteous anger. Where we're not trying to shut anger off, we're just trying to conform to the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For he alone is worthy, and we worship him. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in worship.
God in our lives that gives us strength when we are weak. Next week, we'll continue to talk about this change process that God wants to work in our lives when it comes to our anger. But as you leave from here, may God give you faith. God bless you.